Welcome to the Restoration Church weekly podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to download the Church Center app. This is the best way to stay connected and up to date with all that's happening at Restoration Church. Most importantly, we hope the following message will help draw you closer to Christ. Thanks for listening. Hey, we're continuing our series, Jesus for Grownups. Uh, one, of, one of the reasons that we decided to do a series like this is because a lot of people, even though Jesus is the central figure to our faith, a lot of people don't know much about Jesus. Now, not only do they maybe not know much about Jesus as a figure, a historical figure, what he accomplished, what he did, um, they don't know why he matters in light of the whole story of Scripture. And so way back in January, we started this discussion of the life and the teaching and the ministry of Jesus to help us understand exactly you know, why he came into the world and what he's accomplishing and, and why we put our faith in what he did and who he is. And so way back in you know January 8th, we started talking about the, the birth of Jesus and how God came into the world to be near sinners, and that was a really important part of it. God took on flesh was a really important part of it. He became human, that's a really important part of the story. The next week we talked about the, the baptism of Jesus and how he was identifying not with a God coming down in judgment with sinners needing repentance. Again, identifying with humanity. And then we talked about how right after his baptism he went into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. That was a mimicry of the 40, 40 years of wandering of the Israelites did in, in Egypt, after Egypt. That's an important part, right? Re- retelling the story of the Israelites. And then he was got out of the, the wilderness. He succeeded where Israel had failed succeeded where humanity had failed. That's a big part of it. He then chose 12 disciples, again, a mimicry of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's an important part of it, right? He tells stories about the kingdom of God and how there is a kingdom of self that is rubbing up against the kingdom of God and how God is calling us into a life of surrender. That's a big part of it, right? All, all of these stories, all of these stories we've been telling tell one grand narrative of how Jesus is coming to do for humanity what humanity could not do for themselves. Jesus is doing for us what we so desperately try to do through all of our religious efforts, through all of our working and trying and satisfying. God is doing through Jesus what we could not do for ourselves. That's a big part of this. When he says that it is finished, right, his very last words as he hangs upon that tree, it hangs upon that cross, it is finished. He's crying, I have filled, I've fulfilled the vocation of humanity. I've done for humanity what humanity could not do for themselves. And in so doing, I'm establishing a new covenant, a new agreement for what it means to be in relationship with God. Or in other words, these aren't just a bunch of fun stories about a fascinating man who did some cool stuff and said some neat things 2,000 years ago. One of the reasons we're doing this is to help you understand the story of Jesus' fulfillment of a much larger narrative that began all the way back in the Garden of Eden. It's a much larger story. But another reason that we're doing this series is because, and we've said this week in, week out, that our proximity to Jesus will directly affect the health of our relationships. Because when you're far from Jesus, it's natural to be selfish, and selfishness is always going to hurt. It's not only going to hurt yourself, but it's also going to hurt the people around you. But when you're close to Jesus and becoming like Jesus, love will be the result. You see, love is the fruit of growing towards Jesus. And today I want to help us understand exactly why that is the case. As we continue our series, Jesus for Grown-Ups, I want to unpack what this means. What does it mean that love is the fruit of growing towards Jesus? So 500 years prior to Jesus, 
as the Israelites were sitting in exile far away from Jerusalem, they didn't have a temple. And so uh, the, the teachers of the law, the rabbis, came together and they developed the synagogue. And they started teaching the law because the temple was no longer an option. It had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And so as they sat there wondering, you know, we're far from exile, we're, we're away in exile, we're far from Jerusalem, the Babylonians have destroyed our land. Why did we get to this place? How did we get to this place? And they started thinking, well, you know, it's because our ancestors failed to follow the law. They sinned. They failed to follow the law, so they were banished away from God's presence out into the region of the Babylonians. So determined to never let this happen again, they began dissecting the Torah, and they developed, uh, they, they understood more like 613 laws came out of their understanding and their reading of the Torah. And beyond that, the Israelites couldn't keep those 613 laws, and so they determined that they were going to build a fence around those 613 laws. They were going to add an additional thousands, roughly 4,000 additional laws into those 613 laws so that you would stay away from breaking the law. For example, if it is a law to not do any work on the Sabbath, they would say, okay, well, if you cannot work on the Sabbath, we're going to build a fence around the Torah, and we're going to do, okay, so anything that even might lead you to doing work, we're going to say that is also against the law. So you can't gather wood, you can't light a match, you can't do anything that would even be conceived as work. How many of you have ever seen a Shabbat elevator, for example, right? One of you? Okay. A lot of New York sky rises have these. In other parts of the world, they have these as well. Shabbat elevator. On the Sabbath, you cannot do work on the Sabbath, goes up and down automatically, stopping at every floor as it goes, coming down, because pressing a button, according to the rabbis, is work. And you cannot do work on the Sabbath. And so they dissected the law. And not only did they come up with 613 laws, they came up with about 4,000 additional laws to say, we're not even going to go near the law because it was breaking the law that sent us in to exile. And so we're going to stay away from that. Can you imagine? Is it exhausting just hearing that? Every morning waking up to a list of several thousands of laws and having to tiptoe your way through life, carrying the weight and the burden of obedience because you're afraid that if you don't follow every single law, cross every T and dot every I, then God's going to send you into exile. He's going to banish you like he did your ancestors. It's exhausting. Does it induce a little bit of anxiety in anybody? Thinking about that. And a lot of people think that that is Christianity. How many of you grew up with a form of Christianity that sounded a lot like that? Don't break the laws because God's going to punish you. Don't break the laws. Don't break the rules. Stay in line because if you don't, God is going to punish you. Follow the rules. Religious activity to get on God's good side because God is intrinsically angry And if you don't get on his good side, then he is going to bring bad things upon you. That's the Christianity a lot of us were taught. And that's the Christianity that hurt a lot of people. That's a lot of Christianity, that's the Christianity that you decided you didn't want anything to do with when you turned 18 and had the freedom to leave your parents' house. It's a version of Christianity that hurt you deeply and you said, I want nothing to do with that version of Christianity. There was no life in it. There's no joy in it. Only guilt and stress for not doing enough. Now, in the Bible, those people who tried to keep all 613 laws, in addition to the you know 4,000 plus laws besides that, were known as anybody know? Pharisees. Pharisees. They made it their life's goal to cross every T and dot every I, and they became very legalistic and judgmental of everybody else who could not live up to the standard that they were striving to live by. You know why? Because 
It's not just me who needs who needs to follow the law. It's the whole nation of Israel needs to follow the law. Otherwise, we are going to be banished. And so they were very judgmental of anybody who could not live up to the law as they were trying to do. And when Jesus steps onto the pages of history, he's not like all the other messiahs who had come before him. There are several other messiahs, people who come forward and say, hey, I'm the messiah, I'm the messianic figure, I'm the one who's going to liberate the Israelites from the bondage under the, under the Romans. And there were very legalistic rule followers. Every single one of them came and there were very legalistic revolutionary zealots. And Jesus comes along and he's like, hey, we're the prostitutes, we're the adulterers, we're the lepers. I want to hang out with those people. He, he didn't fit the mold, right? He didn't fit the mold of what all of the other messiahs fit in their day, what they were expecting about the messiah. See, they strive to do everything by the book. In so doing, they neglected justice and mercy and compassion and grace. They looked at the law so closely and they picked it apart and they dissected it that they, they forgot what the law was all about. And it's one of these Pharisees that approached Jesus one day hoping to trap him so that he... And many others would have an excuse to get rid of them. And the Pharisee asked, teacher, out of the 613 laws that we, we have understood that are available to us, which would you say is the greatest? Which would you say is the most important? And Jesus responds. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments all of the instructions from god on how to live rightly with him hang on this principle to love him with all of your heart soul mind and strength and then to take that same love and apply it to yourself and apply it to your neighbor paul says the same thing in romans 13 he says this let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And so Jesus and Paul, and they would say, take all 613 of those commandments and you can boil them down into one single principle. Love God with all of your heart, mind, and strength. And then put that into practice in the way you Treat yourself in the way you treat your neighbor. This is what the law was always supposed to be about. Love was God's law. That's it. Love was God's law. This was his instructions on what it meant to be rightly human that he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. This was his instructions that he gave to Moses at Mount Sinai. This is the same command that he is giving to us still today. Love was at the base of all of it. There were just 613 practical, cultural expressions of what that might have looked like in their day some of you have been thinking yeah right i've read leviticus and there is no way all that nonsense is all about loving god and loving others well i'm not going to go into all of the details but i do want to consider a few of these just to give you kind of an understanding of how love was god's law all the way from the beginning love was god's law you see god realized how easily his people would go astray so he asked them to surround yourself with reminders about what it means to love one another I understand that selfishness is natural, that you're going to drift towards selfish living. And so I just want you to put some reminders around you to keep redirecting your life back towards a life of love. And so, for instance, the commands to not plant your field with more than one type of seed and not to wear clothing made of two types of material, they have practical expressions. 
right? Any, any farmer would say that um, you, you plant a garden strategically because seeds next to each other are going to use different resources and steal from each other. In their day and age, two types of material would shrink at different rate, interior clothing. So there were some practical you know, reasons for, for why God had called them to do this. But, but here's, here's the point. When, when you enter the land that I'm giving you, God would say, it's going to be full of people who, who are going to cause you to go astray. People who are going to promote their own selfish living and your own selfish living. You're entering into a land that is brutal. And they're going to promote selfish living. And that's not the way that I've created you. Because when you are selfish, it hurts. And not only does it hurt you, it hurts others. And so I don't want you to hurt. I want you to thrive as humans. And so I don't want you to become like the people that you're entering into. Don't be like them. Don't do as they do. Don't mix with them. Remain holy and faithful to me. And every time you get dressed, by the way, you're going to be reminded that you are to be a holy people. Because we're not to mix two clothings. And every time you plant a seed or eat your produce, you're going to be reminded that we're not to be a mixed people. We're not to mix with them and intermix with them and be like them. We are to be a holy people set apart. It's kind of like God was telling his people to just, you know, if, if you have a post-it note, just, just slap it on your mirror and on your door and on your refrigerator and on your dashboard and just surround yourself with little notes saying, remember, you were called to be a people who are in love with God and in love with others. You might put a post-it note on your sink saying, you know, to better love those people in my household, I'm going to do the dishes. I'm going to put my... Luke left for this one? What? I'm going to put my bowl in the dishwasher. <clears throat> to um, the kids, you know, may might put one near your play space that says, you know, to better love my parents and to honor the people in this household, I'm going to clean up after myself after I use this. You might put one on your TV that says, you know, to better love myself, I'm going to inspect what I watch and what I take in. You might put one in the mirror in the bathroom stating, you know, to better love those whom I share this space with, I'm going to make sure the toothpaste goes down the sink and not on the mirror, you know, or something like that. You can tell I have, you know, a bunch of kids and examples. But. <laughs> you might want to put one on the dashboard of your car stating, to better love myself, listen to something that's going to be inspiring and uplifting rather than some trash talk radio that's only going to bring me down. You might put one at work saying to better love my coworkers, encourage them today. When I'm sitting around the water cooler, you know, instead of gossiping, maybe I'd be a light of encouragement, speak peace and truth into the lives of my coworkers. You get the idea, right? Well, well, how is this command, do not cut the hair of the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard, a command to love? Well, earlier in this chapter in Leviticus, God tells his people that when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. See, every time the other the, the Israelites looked at a man with a beard long beard right they weren't supposed to clip their beard let it grow naturally every time they looked at a man with a beard they were to be reminded that they were to be a generous people it's not what we think about when we look at beards today is it but every time you look at a beard on a man think you were called to be a generous person that was what the law was helping them to remember they were to love but isn't there a problem in our culture it's a problem in our culture because love has basically become a meaningless term. 
And we know this because we, we, we stretch it so thin and we use it so ambiguously. Type love into every dictionary database and you will discover that its, ma- its meanings range from passionate affection to sexual desire, a strong liking, a tennis score, benevolent affection, care for another's well-being, and a word used in communication to represent the letter L. I think of myself. I think I love my wife, of course. I love my children. I love the Minnesota Twins. No baseball, right? I love Mexican food. I love chilies in particular. Oh, by the way, I also love God. And so isn't it funny how we take this word, right, and we throw like, hey, yeah, I love God, but I love chilies. Like, should I love God in the same way I love chilies? Like, should should I love... Should I? I mean, I'm pretty passionate about chilies, but like... In our language, we take one term called love and we cram every meaning associated with that term into it. But most of you know this, right? In the Hebrew and the Greek languages, there are several words used to describe this one word that we have for love. The Greek language had three terms for love, eros, storge, and phileo. Eros was the word that we use to describe our sexual the sexual desire for another, erotic. The word erotic comes from this word. It's the, it's the word you'd use when that special someone walks to the room and you get these butterflies in your stomach, right? It's that, it's that infatuation period after, after you start a relationship. Like that's, that's eros at work in you. Storge was the word that describes the love of a parent for their child. It's unique. Uh, the, the love that we have for our kids is so unique, right? And when there's really no other way to describe it, but it's a very unique kind of of love. And if you're a parent, then you understand exactly what I mean. If you don't, you may have no idea what that means. Phileo was a word that described affection or friendship. The city named Philadelphia is a conjunction of two words, uh, phileo, love, and adelphos, which is brother, right? So city of brotherly love. It's, it's the affection. It's the love I have for chilies. It's the love I have for Mexican food. It's the love I have for the twins. It's the affectionate love that we have for one another. It's for food and caterpillars and sunny days and all the other things that we say that we love. But when scholars were working on translating the Old Testament into Greek during the second century prior to Jesus, they used these three terms, and that's all they had at their disposal. And none of these matched the love that God has for us. None of these matched the covenant, enduring, self-sacrificial love that God has for his people. There wasn't a Greek equivalent for the Hebrew word ahava. And so they developed one in the Greek language. And most of you know that that word is agape, right? Agape is unconditional It doesn't matter what you look like or smell like or sound like or how annoying you are or what your behavior is. Love will always extend towards you. Agape is enduring, meaning that it is everlasting and it is eternal. It doesn't give up when things get hard. It doesn't give up when you fail. It doesn't give up when your behavior isn't matching its nature. Agape is enduring. It will always, always remain. Agape is also a choice, meaning that once the choice is made, it doesn't rely on feeling or affection to make it true. It's, it's, agape doesn't feel its way towards others. You'll notice that in the, in the dictionary definitions, the verb is all feeling-based. It's not action-based. It's a feeling of love, the world tells us. So no, agape is an action towards another person that I've chosen to make. Even if I don't feel like making it, I will choose to love that person. Agape is other-oriented, meaning that it looks to others first prior to itself. It is outward bent. And agape is self-sacrificial. 
It is active and it is costly. And it always gives of itself so that another might benefit. Agape is the term used in scripture to describe God. It is the term that describes God's love for humanity. It is the term used when Jesus says the world will know who my followers are by their love. It is the idea that love that we are to have for God and is the idea that God has for us. Agape is the term solely used in the New Testament. Phileo is used a handful of times, but that's really it. If you ever come across the word love in scripture, it is referring to this agape type love. The entire Christian lifestyle, Jesus would say, can be summed up in this one word, agape. Because it is agape, the love that is from God, that defeats sin. If you were with us last week, we talked about this. We talk about this all the time. The nature of sin is my self-reigning kingdom. It's my selfish disposition that causes death. And death is because it turns our back on the source of life in our creator. And of course, whenever my self-reigning kingdom is active, whenever I am selfish, who do I hurt? Not only you, I hurt you. Of course, selfishness always hurts other people. That's natural. It also hurts me. When we live in our own self-reigning kingdom, we are hurting when we do so. But the nature of agape is self-sacrifice for the betterment of others. It's giving of myself for the betterment of others. It's surrendering my throne and inviting God's reign to love and to guide and to empower my life. Love was the nature of the law. And it was love that Jesus came to fulfill and to embody. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law, we are told. He came to live as Israel was supposed to, but they had failed over and over again. He came to reclaim the right relationship with God, with others, and with self that Adam and Eve had abandoned in the Garden of Eden. He lived the law perfectly, and he invites us now to live through him so that we can now embody the love that he has for us towards others. Or as he specifically states his command, Love one another as I have loved you. And by this, everybody will know that you are my disciple. Let me say that again. Here's Jesus' command. Love one another. Love one another as I have loved you because by this, everyone will know that you are my disciple. And so I want to take a step back for the remaining time that we have here. Because I've been reflecting on my own journey towards Christ a lot uh, throughout this series. And, and this, right, this, this command, this idea that Jesus embodies and fulfills the law and the law is love and the whole Christian life can be summed up in this one word agape, like that was not what I was taught when I first came to Christ. I was taught rules. I was taught the behavior modification. I was taught motions and milestones. I was taught confirmation and I was taught communion and I was taught baptism. And like many of you, I, I believed in a God that would punish me if I didn't follow the rules. And, and of course the rules were all like, Hey, you know, you need to attend church. You need to attend the Bible study. You need to go to youth group and, and be a leader in the youth group and, and do all the things that the church is telling you that you need to do. And those are not bad things by the way, but that was what I equated with Christianity was following the rules and being a good Christian. I originally came to Jesus because I didn't want to go to hell. Anybody, you know, can, can admit that that's why you came to Jesus in the beginning? I came to Jesus because I didn't want to go to hell. And so I conformed to the religion I was handed trying to get on God's good side. And sometimes, and I want you to, I want you to realize this, sometimes we have to start there. 
Like, I came to Jesus because I was fearful of hell, and that's okay. It got me in the door, right? And sometimes we, we have to start there, but we are to be pitied, my friends, if we stay there. If we stay in our understanding of a God that we started with, then we are to be pitied. This is why it's so important to grow. This is why it's so important to grow, because every single one of us came to Jesus with a ton of baggage and a skewed theology and understanding. Every single one of us came to Jesus with a ton of baggage. Every single one of us came to Jesus with a particular understanding of who God is, of how he works, and it was skewed. And, and let's, let's just be humble and let's just be honest. Our understanding of God is still skewed to some extent. We will never fully understand who God is on this side of eternity. Everybody has painted a picture of God and it looks like the drawing of a three-year-old using crappy markers. We're just a bunch of scribbles, right? We come to Jesus and our picture of God is just a, it looks like a three-year-old scribbled on some pages with some really, really cheap markers. But part of growing is removing the scales that have blinded us and helping us to see God more fully and helping to see and understand God more clearly. You see, I came to Jesus in fear and I was taught rules. I wasn't taught, for instance, though I experienced this all the time, that I had established my own self-reigning kingdom and it was causing a lot of pain in my relationships and it was causing a lot of pain to myself and I needed to surrender that kingdom. You know, I was taught, I was taught, Ross, just do more. Just do more, Ross. Sign up for more things. Be more involved. Start leading the youth group. Start leading the Bible study. Start leading the worship. Just do more and then you will come closer to Christ. I was never taught surrender more empty yourself more give away more of yourself i was never taught any of that i wasn't taught that if i surrender then then in its place in, in the place of my own self-reigning kingdom god would would plant his seed and then as that's cultivated it would grow up into something beautiful and and life-changing I, I i wasn't told until i discovered it later myself even that love is from god these were the passages that we were focusing on in my in the church that I that I that I started going to when I came to faith. I didn't know that we love because he first loved us. I didn't understand that. That the whole of Christian life is just a reflection of God's love of us. That if we could just spend our days just reflecting on God's love for us and let that seep deep into our soul. I talked about this in the in the worship time that that we are just reacting to to this lie that we that God doesn't love us? And if we could just believe and believe and believe and let the true love of God seep down into us and start to grow within us, that it would change everything? I wasn't taught that. That wasn't the Christianity I came to. I don't understand that we should be pondering with every breath the love God has for us and exploring it and remembering it and letting God's love wash over us continually because this then would inspire our love for others. Now, I, I had put on a mask called Christianity. I looked apart on Sundays at church. I went through the motions. I knew most of the answers, but I had not love. Love was not my motivation. Love was not flowing from me. It wasn't what I was about. Everyone knew me and even heralded me as the model Christian, the model youth group kid. But I had not love. And it was around the same time in high school it was the, I, I remember this day so clearly. It was the, the day between, uh, the, it was the summer between my, my senior year of high school and my first year of college, and I went garage sailing to find some stuff for my dorm room. And I approached this house, and there was this girl selling lemonade 
at the bottom of her driveway. And so I said, hey, to support her entrepreneurship, I'm going to go buy a cup of lemonade. And I went there and she says, hey, you know, I, I picked these lemons and I squeezed them myself and I picked them from my lemon tree. I'm from Minnesota, by the way. So I'm like, you know, I've never heard of a lemon tree growing in Minnesota before. It's just I don't think it's the right climate for it. And so I was just telling with her. I said, wow, that's so cool. And then she pointed over and she, and she showed me a maple tree that her mom had tied lemons to. And they were dangling from the branches of this maple tree. And I'm standing there. I'm looking at this. I'm like, that maple tree is pretending. It's pretending to be a lemon tree. And the reason that was so profound to me and, and stuck out to me was because I, I had this experience where for the first time in a very, in like my whole Christian journey up to this point, I looked at that maple tree that was pretending to be a lemon tree and God started to speak to me. He said, Ross, you're pretending too. You're just, you're pretending. You, you put the mask on, man, you wear, you wear it really well. Like everybody thinks of you as this is the great Christian, but there is no love in you. You're just pretending. And it was an important realization, a hard realization to grasp. It took me on a, a new kind of journey with new kinds of people. But as Paul, Paul wrote, right, Paul, Paul wrote that if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, man, I'm only a resounding gong or a clinging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, if I have faith that can even move mountains but I do not have love, I'm nothing. If love is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, which is what I truly wanted, then what I did was I began trying harder. I did more things. Which is just the nature of religion, by the way. And it took many years of trying to be a better lover when I realized that it was my self-reigning kingdom at war with God's kingdom and therefore my responsibility was not to try harder. My responsibility was to surrender more. The fruit of God's spirit in us, we're told, is love. It is not the fruit of my trying harder. It is not the fruit of my own willpower. It is not the fruit of my doing more, right? It is fruit of God's spirit within us. This is a fruit that is produced when we surrender to God's reign in us, when we surrender to God's spirit at work in us. Our job is not to produce the fruit, but to cultivate the ground for God's seed to grow. God is the producer of the fruit. His spirit produces the fruit. It is a product of his spirit. And when it's slow to grow in us, because come on, friends, like even those of us who've been following Jesus and surrendered daily for a long time, we recognize that we run up against situations all the time where love is not the first thing on my mind. Put a five and a half year old in front of me and see what happens, all right? See how, see how manifest patience becomes in me. We run up against challenges all the time. We run up against circumstances and conflict and enemies all the time who challenge our ability to love. And in those moments, my friends, the, the challenge is not to try harder. The challenge is to surrender more. That is what we're called to. Is, is to pray. Jesus says this in, in Luke 11 when he's describing what it means to be a person of prayer. He says, if you ask and seek and knock for the gift of God's spirit, he will give it to you in abundance. If you want to love more, in other words, don't try harder. Submit more. Bend lower in humility and cry out to God, I need more of Jesus, more of Jesus, and more of Jesus. I need less of me. 
And Jesus promises that he'll give it to you in abundance. The gift and the power to love as you were created to love. I'm going to invite the band forward. We're going to reflect on this as we sing a final song together. I recognize that love is, um, I, I've, I've said this, I, I better believe it, right? That love is the essence of the Christian faith, right? You can wrap Christianity up in a box and label it love and you would, you would have it. We're going to do a quick three-part series immediately after Easter, unpacking love. Tearing it apart, dissecting it so that we can fully understand it. We're going to see what love means in a nutshell. Three weeks to go through love, I get it. It's not a lot, but this is the essence of the Christian faith lived out, and so we're going to pick it apart for three weeks. After those three weeks, we're going to delve into your questions that you've been asking, really, really phenomenal questions. And so we're going to be going through those journeys um, after Easter. But for three weeks, we're going to look at love, love in a nutshell, and we're going to figure out what it means to be Christians living out this calling to love others. But let's just get honest for a second. The church... And Christians, we do not have a great reputation for being people who are known by our love. It's just the truth. This command to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbors, it's been far from the lips of preachers. It's been far from the actions of Christians. It's been far from our minds. It's been far from our practice. And my hope for us individually and corporately is that we would be rooted and established in love. My hope for you is that you would be rooted and established in the foundation of love. I pray that we would be a people who are exploring constantly the the unimaginable depth of God's love for us. And that as you're sitting around your dinner table, as you're tucking your kids at bed at night, as you're driving along the road, that that maybe our conversations would be less about the world and more about the love of God for us. And we would see what that does to our relationships. We would do, see what that does to our households. We would see what that does to us individually. My hope is that we would mimic God by walking in the way of love. As Paul wrote the Ephesians, as he kind of summed up the Christian life, that you would mimic God by walking in the way of love. Or as he wrote to the Corinthians, that we would do everything in love. It's a lifelong journey, and it's one that we're never going to perfect on this side of eternity, but it's one that we need to be entering into. Because the closer that we get to Christ, the healthier our relationships are going to be. The closer we get to Christ, the, 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 the more like Him we become, the more embodied love becomes in us, the more abundant life we'll experience. And so here's my prayer for each one of us. And it's a prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians. And I'm just going to pray this over us. And, and if, if, if you want that as your life as well, if that's your desire, then pray this along with me. It's in chapter 3. You can reference it later as well. Here's what I pray over Restoration Church. Here's what I pray over every individual of Restoration Church. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen.